if you've got a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to hold it up with me right now. And let's repeat these words. This is God's Word. I believe what it says is true. It teaches me how to know God and how to live for God. It has the power to change my life. Now open up your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're in, a, we're in the third week of a four-week series that we've called Generous Life. And the reason we're doing this series is because I believe deep down inside, most of us, perhaps all of us, really do desire to live generous lives. In week one, we discovered that that a relationship with God is the starting point, it's the beginning point of a generous life. It all begins with God. And we discovered as we looked at Zacchaeus that a greedy man who encounters a grace-filled God will become a generous man. And we discovered that that, that is true each and every time. When, when we encounter the grace of God, it will allow generosity to pour forth in our life. Last week, as we continued this series, we discovered that the tithe is not the finish line. The tithe is the starting line for generous giving. It's not the place that we seek to work up to. It's the place that we begin. And we discovered that the Bible teaches in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that the local church of which we are a part is the place that we are to bring these tithes. But we also discovered something very important. And that is this, that we can tithe. We can give the right amount and still not be right with God. Because giving should originate in the heart. And if I am giving and yet my heart hasn't changed and it hasn't caused me to desire justice and mercy and faith, then something is wrong in my life. Well, today as we continue this series, I want us to look at two different men. And I want us to ask ourselves this question. Are we selfish or are we selfless? And as we answer that question, I want us to discover how we can move off of that starting line, the tithe, and we can begin to grow in the grace of giving. Because that's God's desire for each and every one of our lives. God wants us to begin at a place in our life, but he wants us to grow to the point that we see everything that we have as a resource that God can use to build his kingdom. Now let me begin with a statement I think each and every one of you would agree with, and that is this. We live in a selfish, self-centered world. Would you agree with that? We live in a selfish self-centered world and the truth is the American dream has fostered that attitude now let me define American dream for you in a nutshell the American dream is this if I work hard I can make more and I can have more now in a nutshell that's what the American dream is if I work hard I can make more and I can have more now on the surface there is nothing wrong with the American dream the American dream leads us to study more. The American dream leads us to work hard. The American dream leads us to do our best believing that if we do, then it will be better for us and it will be better for our families. But I believe that the American dream 
has become the American obsession. Let me give you an example. Michael Frisbee, for instance, he is a former White House correspondent with the Wall Street Journal, and now he runs a public relations firm called Frisbee and Associates. He has a home that is located between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland. It's an 11,000 square foot home. It's three stories high. It sits on three and a half acres. Its amenities include an English garden. Now, I've got to confess to you, I have no clue what an English garden is. It has a wine cellar. It has a master bedroom larger than many apartments. It has a spiral staircase, a music room, a gym, a sauna, steam room. It has a business office. And then there is the room, this major entertainment center with, with a 10-foot wide screen for movies, top-of-the-line projection equipment, a bar and, and huge leather lounge chairs. And this is what Frisbee says. He says, I believe that you can live out your fantasy. That is what I'm doing. That is what my wife is doing. That's what other people are doing when we build houses like this and we live like this. Now the truth of the matter is the average American house, speaking of houses, has more than doubled since the 1950s. And our houses aren't bigger because we have bigger families. In reality, we have smaller families. My wife and I live in a house that is twice the size of either of the houses that we grew up in. And our homes are just one example. It seems that our desire for bigger and, and better and nicer and more has become a driving force in many of our lives. I mean, look at the cars we drive. Look at the vacations that we take. Look at the toys we have. And it seems like that we always have to have the latest gadget, even if the old one works fine. If you don't believe me, wait until the next iPhone comes out and see how many people are waiting in line to spend hundreds, if not a thousand bucks, for a telephone. America, it seems, is still one nation under God. But the problem is, it's not the God of the Bible. It's the God of materialism. It's, it's the desire to acquire. Well over 25 years ago, Francis Schaeffer warned the church of a danger that the church had in embracing America's two values. And he said America's two values are personal peace and affluence. Now by personal peace, he meant as long as I'm left alone, I don't care about the person across the street or around the world. You see, I want my life undisturbed, and I don't want anyone bothering me and mine, and as long as me and mine are okay, then everything is okay. That's personal peace. By affluence, he meant the desire for more things. And I'm afraid what he warned us of has come true. I believe that for many of us, maybe all of us to some degree, have replaced kingdom living with the desire to have. And the truth is, we desire a whole lot. And yet the Bible warns us against this kind of materialistic attitude. In, in his letter to Timothy, Paul said this. He said, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And then he went on to say this. Some people, 
eager for money, have wandered from the faith, have pierced themselves with many griefs. What Paul is saying there is if we aren't careful, our love affair with money and the things that it can buy will bring us more grief than it does joy. And tragically, many of us are more shaped by this consumer culture that we live in than we are shaped by biblical truth. But what we need to understand is this, this selfish culture that we live in, this selfish culture that, that we have embraced, God's desire is for us to reject it and instead live a selfless life. And I want you to know this morning that the best way for us to reject selflessness and become, or selfishness and become selfless is to practice radical generosity. Let me say that again. The best way for you and I to turn from a selfish mindset to a selfless mindset is to practice radical generosity. John Wesley was a preacher in the 1700s, and, and he lived a life that modeled this kind of generosity each year. He would calculate what it took for him to live on. And then, after he calculated what it took for him to live on, he would literally give away all the rest. In one year, he calculated what it would take to live on, and it was 30 pounds. That was approximately $2,400 in our currency today. $2,400. Can you imagine living on that? I, I can't. Then he gave away over 1,400 pounds, 98% of his income. He lived on $2,400, gave away everything else. That is radical generosity. Mother Teresa said this, you have to give until it hurts. If you only give what you can do without, then you really haven't given anything. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? If we can only give what we can do without, then we haven't really given anything that's of significance. John Piper wrote a book years ago for pastors that, that is called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And when I read that book years ago, he had a chapter that dealt with money. And in that chapter, he said something that pierced my heart. This is what he said. The person who thinks the money he makes is meant mainly to increase his comforts on earth is a fool. God does not prosper a man's business so that man can move from a Buick to a BMW. God prospers a business so that hundreds of unreached peoples can be reached with the gospel. He prospers a business so that 20% of the world's population can move a step from the precipice of starvation. Then he went on to say this, God is not glorified when we keep for ourselves, no matter how thankfully, what we ought to be using to alleviate the misery of unevangelized and uneducated people, the unhoused, and the unfed millions. Wow. Now I don't know about you, but when I read that, that still pierces my heart. And it makes me look at how I use the money that God has placed 
in my hands. And what you need to understand is that kind of radical generosity is how the early church lived. Now if your Bibles are open, I want you to read with me beginning in verse 32 of chapter 4. It says this, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerly, powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned, brought the money to the apostles. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the first part of this passage, it makes me a little unsettled. It makes me a little uncomfortable. It's a little unsettling to think that, that God would expect the same thing of me that he expected of the early church. I mean, I, I, I went to school. I, I worked hard. I have saved up. I have spent wisely so that I can have the things that I have. I mean, I didn't do these things just so I could turn around and give the money away. And yet, that's what the early church often did. Don't let this slip by. This teaches something radical. It's kind of like the story of the rich young ruler where, where Jesus said, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. You see, I think that, that most of us try to soften those words and we try to soften the words in Acts chapter 4 because if we don't try to soften these words, these words will rock our world. 
we assume that God certainly doesn't expect us to hold our resources like this, saying, God, whatever you desire, it is yours. Now, let me clarify something with this passage, because this passage can be confusing to us. What this passage is speaking of is not communism. Communism is a system where someone else makes the decisions for you. But this wasn't someone else taking your money from you. This was a person giving their money willingly and freely. This is not communal living. They each had their own homes. They lived in their homes. They had property. The reason we know this is because in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we're told from time to time there would be people who would sell a piece of property. They would sell a piece of land, and they would bring it to the apostles to give as, as the church had need. And this isn't even welfare, which encourages a handout mentality. Later on, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he should not eat. And so this isn't saying that, that we sit back and we give our resources to people who just want to sit back in their lounge chair and watch TV and do nothing. But what this is saying, is that each and every one of us who are Christ followers are called to live a life of radical generosity. And notice this was not something that just a few practiced. Verse 32 says that no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. Underline that phrase if your Bible is open, no one. You see, this mindset, this attitude had penetrated the hearts of each and every believer. And at this point, at this point in the church, there were no abuses and there were no misuses of giving. Now, that's radical generosity, and that's why. That's why radical generosity is one of our core values. Did you know that? If you've gone through our, our running together class, our new members class, you know that radical generosity is a core value that we hold on to. I want you to listen to this core value. Since we believe the giving of our financial resources is both a wonderful privilege and a tremendous responsibility, therefore, we should strive to grow in the grace of giving. When we're obedient in our giving, we will be able to carry out the mission of the church and the ministry of the church. But let me say to you that I personally believe that radical generosity is probably the hardest of all of our core values to embrace. You see, it's easy for us to talk about biblical teaching. It's easy for us to talk about prayer and service and evangelism. These kind of things, and, and, and at least on the surface, embrace these things. You heard me say, at least on the surface, embrace these things. You see, there are none of us that would sit back and, and say, when we talk about Biblical teaching, we want Oprah to come and share with us. You're here because you want biblical truth. You know that service is a part of being a part of the body of Christ. You know that evangelism is what we are called to do. We know those things on the surface. And so we may embrace them on the surface, even though we may not put them into practice in our life. But when it comes to radical generosity... It's hard for us to even embrace that on the surface. And yet, that's what we read about in Acts chapter 4. 
all of the people in the church were practicing this kind of radical generosity. And then we get into chapter 5, and and chapter 5 is even more unsettling. Notice how the chapter begins. It begins with the word but. In other words, in contrast to Barnabas' generosity, there was this man and a woman named Ananias and Sapphira. And evidently, Barnabas' giving was so significant, it was so sacrificial that, that God had decided that it needed to be pointed out. And when Ananias and Sapphira saw this attention that Barnabas was receiving, they decided they wanted some of that attention. And so, they had some possessions, they had some property, and they sold it. Now, the word for property um, in in chapter 5 is different than the word for land in chapter 4. And that's just simply telling us that, that it was capital that they gave. Sometimes people were giving land, sometimes people were giving homes, sometimes people were giving cows or other things like that. It was just capital that they had and they were giving it. But instead of giving it all, they kept some for themselves. Now listen, Peter even said it was theirs to begin with. They didn't have to give it in the first place. And when they gave it, it was theirs to determine how much they wanted to give. That wasn't the sin. The sin was they tried to deceive the body into believing that they were making a sacrifice that they weren't actually making. And they lied to God, they lied to the church, and God struck them dead. Imagine, 10 minutes from now, 15 minutes from now, taking the offering. People start falling over. That'd be a little frightening. It'd be a little disconcerting to say the least, wouldn't it? And yet, that's what happened here. They died and the Bible says twice great fear fell upon them now to understand this wasn't a I'm not going to serve God fear because God is a terrible God it was a God deserves our all fear now how do I know that because the Bible tells us as we continue to read that more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord and so in spite of Ananias and Sapphira killing over dead because of the way they gave, the church continued to multiply and grow. Now this passage gives us two examples of giving. Barnabas was a selfless giver. Selfless. He owned a field, he sold it, he brought the money to the apostles for them to use as they saw fit. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. And Barnabas understood, as all of the early believers did, that this was over and above the tithe. It was capital that he had. So how how would that apply to us today? Well, it could apply in a variety of ways. We could have a piece of land, and we could say, you know, it would be better to use this for the kingdom than for my own benefit. It it could be a car or a, 
a boat or some other kind of possession, jewelry, something like that. Or it could be like myself and, and many others in our church have done. It could be that even as we plan our death, we are planning on remembering the Lord's work. My wife and I have made that decision. Northside is going to be blessed much more in our death than it is while we're alive. Now, don't poison me. <laughs> don't do anything like that. But we've just, we just believe that, that we want to bless our church even as we go to receive the reward that God has given us in heaven. And that's something, by the way, listen, that's something that anyone and everyone can do. Everyone can do that. I, I, I don't understand. I really don't. I don't understand why any Christ follower who loves their church would not say in their will, I want to remember our church. I want to help our church even as we die. In, in our will, we're blessing our kids, we're blessing our grandkids. But we're also blessing our church. And, and so that's what it talks about here. They were selfless Givers. And then there was Ananias and Sapphira. They were selfish givers. They were selfish, deceitful. They desired attention. They desired praise for themselves. And I know that none of us want to be identified with Ananias and Sapphira. And so what can we learn from this passage that will help us move from this selfishness that dominates our culture to a selflessness that we see in the New Testament church. Well, I believe there are four attitudes, and trust me, we're not going to unpack them, so don't get scared, but I'm going to share them with you. Four attitudes that if you embrace and you allow God to establish in your life, you will move from selfish giving to selfless giving. Here's the first one. I need to understand that I'm a part of a body. If I want to move to selfless giving, I've got to understand that I am a part of a body. In the Greek, the word for all or multitude in those verses in chapter 4 literally mean a large number. But then it says that the large number became one. The Greek word is mia. In other words, what this passage is saying is the many, the multitude became one. How do we move from selfishness to selflessness one way is by realizing that as believers there is never a me there is always a we we who are many through the power of the Holy Spirit become one and to be honest with you that is one of the main differences between us the church today in the 21st century in America and the early church in the New Testament. They really did see themselves as a body. They really did see themselves as a family. That's why it was so much easier for them to give of their resources to help one another to accomplish their common purpose. The early church really had only one objective and that one objective was seen in two ways. It was to minister to one another and carry out the mission that God had given them. Everything that they had was for those two things. To minister to the body and carry out the mission that God had given them. We've got to recognize that we are a part 
of a body. Next, I need to understand that nothing I have is my own. Not my home, not my car, not my business, not the clothes I wear, not the food in my pantry. The early church understood this. That's why it says no one claimed any of these possessions as their own. They truly did recognize that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. They knew that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. And they embraced the truth that they were simply stewards of God's resources. And the question was, was never what do I want to do with my money, my possessions? That was never the question. The question was always, what does God want to do with his money, his possessions, his resources? Because understand, you're a steward. You're not an owner. Third, I will use my resources to meet needs. Look at verse 32. There were no needy people among them. Could this become a reality in our day? Could, could this become a reality in our church? A absolutely. It, it really could. But only when we have a change of heart like Zacchaeus did. And only when we see the tithe as the starting line. And only when we begin to recognize that everything that we have is not ours, it's God's to be used for His glory and His honor. Now, does this mean that everybody will have the same amount? No. It doesn't mean this. Again, that's communism. That's a system that says that, that you have to divvy up and everyone has an equal amount. That's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is that needs are met to the point that there were no needy people. There were no people going without food. There were no people going without shelter. There were no people going without clothes. There were no people that were going without these, these necessities of life in the family. Why? Because if there were, and it wasn't because they were unwilling to work, the church stepped in and said, we will help. And the church stepped in and said, not only will we help alleviate this present problem, I believe the early church stepped in and said, we will help alleviate the future problem by helping you learn how to provide for yourself. You see, we've got to come to that point where we realize our resources are there to meet needs. And finally, we don't give to be recognized. Jesus said to beware of practicing your righteousness or giving to the needy before men in order to be seen by them. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted recognition. They wanted their name on a plaque. They wanted their names inscribed with the gift they gave. And unfortunately, it was, wasn't it? But it wasn't inscribed the way they wanted. It wasn't remembered the way they desired. All eternity will know about Ananias and Sapphira, but not because of what they gave, but rather because of their ungodly, selfish, greedy attitude. 
Now, do you want to be remembered like Ananias and Sapphira? I think not. Or do you want to be remembered like Barnabas, who was a generous, gracious man, had a piece of land, and when a need arose, he went over and above, sold that piece of land, laid it at the apostles' feet, and said, here, use this to meet needs. You see, that's how we move beyond the tithe and we grow in the grace of giving. Now, understand, we are at different points in our lives. We are at different places in regard to having to care for our children, debt that we may have, jobs that we may have. All of those things, we are at different places but I want you to know something today. Look at me. Grace giving is not about what you make. Grace giving is about the attitude that has penetrated your heart. When my wife and I first got married, we really were poor. We were. We didn't know how we were going to make ends meet. I knew about budgeting. I understood that that was important. And so before we ever got married, we sat down and we mapped out a budget. And our budget did not work. There, there was just absolutely no way that our budget would work. But we knew that God had called us to get married. We believed that the time was now. And we knew that we weren't going to change our giving habits based upon something not working out. And so we got married, we gave, and we gave well over the tithe. And God met our needs in incredible ways. God provided a family that, that bought us furniture that we didn't have. God brought other people in our lives that just blessed us. In different ways. So, am I telling you that if you're faithful in your giving and you trust God, God's going to do that for you? I'm not going to tell you anything like that. All I can tell you is what God did for me. And all I can tell you is that we discovered last week that God said, trust me in this. Test me in this. And see if I'll not open up the windows of heaven and pour out my blessings upon you. I'm here to tell you. That God has never let us down. He's never let us down. And he will never let you down. Trust him. Get off the starting line. Begin to grow. And see how God begins to pour out his blessings in a variety of ways in your life. Now understand. Understand. You're never going to get there until you've had an encounter with the grace-filled Savior. Everything I'm saying makes no sense whatsoever to you until you've experienced the greatest gift ever given to man, and that's the gift of eternal life. When you discover God's grace in your life, that really does change everything. That is the place it begins. And then we grow. And so for those of you who perhaps have never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never 
had his grace radically change your life. I want to encourage you today. Let go. Surrender it all. Trust him. Let him change your life on the inside so that he can change you on the outside. And then if you're here and you're struggling with this giving thing, we just challenge you. Trust God. Recognize that it's not yours. The Lord gives and the Lord can take away. You need to trust Him and honor Him. See what He does. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed and with your eyes closed, let me just say again, if you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity right here, right now, to do that. If that's the desire of your heart, you're not praying this because you want to get rich, you're not praying this because you're in debt and you want to get out, you're praying this because you've recognized you've sinned against the Holy God, you've rebelled against your Creator, and you're wanting right now to ask His forgiveness and turn to Him, that's where you're at. Then let me encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. I'm sorry. Tired of living that way. I'm turning back to you, God. Father, I believe that you love me. You proved it through Jesus. Jesus came to this earth. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave so that I could be forgiven. Jesus, I'm trusting you. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Save me today, I pray. 